Father, again, we are uh, so thankful that we get to come here today and uh, worship you through song, hear an amazing testimony of your goodness, and um, hear from your word. We are, we're really spoiled this morning. And so we, we, we ask, Lord, that uh, as we open up your word this morning, that you would help us to understand it, to grasp it, that it would, would not just be simply head knowledge, but Lord, it would, it would reach into our hearts and it'd be truth that we would live our lives by. Again, we're gonna need your help. Holy Spirit, I need your help. As I uh, go through this passage, I, I do not wanna say what you don't want me to say. So help me as I uh, lead this church uh, through this passage. It's a glorious passage for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians, book of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13 this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, 1 to 13. What I'd like to do is jump into our imaginary plane and just see the entire passage, go through the entire passage, get a bird's eye view of what's going on, then we'll land the plane and then go line by line, verse by verse, okay? So uh, Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 1, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit." To be specific, that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the, of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places." This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf for they are your glory. Now, this is a very interesting passage. Some of you who... Uh, did a bit of study prior to this sermon must have been scratching your heads. What in the world is Paul doing here? Because it seems like he's starting something and then he just trails off into this other topic. Well, here's the thing. That's exactly what he's doing. That's exactly what he's doing. He's, Paul, uh, he, he begins by saying, uh, for this reason, I, Paul, so he's the subject here. And if you, if you uh, uh, let me get to there, uh, skip down to verse 14 of chapter 3. He's, Paul says, for this reason, again, similar language right there, I bow my knees before the Father. 
And then now Paul's going to, after this, go into an amazing prayer. I love reading the prayers and studying the prayers of Paul because it gives me a, a glimpse into this pastor's heart. You see his affection for the, the, the church. You see his concern for the church. And, and it, it didn't matter if the church was experiencing you know, uh, internal problems or even external issues with persecution and, and, and trouble uh, from the outside. Paul prayed in such a way that he believed God was big enough to handle the situation. And so I love going through those prayers, and next week we will go through those prayers. But Paul begins this prayer, or at least he's leading up to this prayer in verse 1. But he doesn't actually start the prayer until verse 14. Verses 2 through 13 is a rabbit trail for Paul. Now, when it comes to rabbit trails, I... You know, prior to coming here, I, I knew what rabbit trails were. I, I, I would actually be known to go on a couple of rabbit trails myself. But good Lord, when I came to Cascade Bible Church, uh, Bugs Bunny has nothing on your rabbit trails over here. You guys love rabbit trails. And now there's two, two, there's two kinds of rabbit trails. There's one rabbit trail that is completely meaningless. It's just a complete distraction. There's no purpose in it at all. Then there's a second uh, kind of rabbit trail, and it's particularly when it comes to the study of God's word uh, that is meaningful, that is good. Those kind of rabbit trails I like to call sanctified rabbit trails. And I remember the first week being here, we went to a Bible study, here's the question, and we trail off into a rabbit trail. And it was great. And we were on that rabbit trail for like 15, 20 minutes. Just, oh, this is great. Amazing truth from God's word. And then it was like, okay, so what was the original question? Oh yeah, that, that was the original question. Let's get back to the question. And then pff, right back on another rabbit trail. And I mean, it was, a, it was a, the Bible study was like only going through like three or four verses, but we didn't even get to verse two. Like I was going, wow. <laughs> like, but it was good. It was good. They weren't meaningless rabbit trails. Well, Cascade Bible Church, we are in good company because as Paul is about to begin this amazing prayer, which we'll look at next week, Paul goes on a rabbit trail. It's a sanctified rabbit trail. In fact, I would say it's even more so because Paul is being guided, led, inspired by the Holy Spirit. What he's writing is God's word to us. And what Paul's, uh, the, the, the main content of this rabbit trail that Paul goes on is really a, a, a reprise of what Paul talked about in chapter 2, specifically verses 11 through 22, when he talked about the Gentiles and the Jews. When he said that they're, they're, you know, Gentiles and Jews aren't just two groups meeting under one building, but they are the church. They've been reconciled not only to God, but to each other, that they are their fellow citizens with all the rest of the saints, that, that uh, you know, they're, they're, they're part of God's kingdom, that they're, they're part of God's household, and that they both, all of them, have the same Holy Spirit working in them and through them. And God's building them up into this amazing dwelling uh, for himself. And so Paul's going to basically bring that up again. It was just so good. He's just going to bring, bring it up. And... Um, as he does, he's going to refer to this amazing truth as mystery, as a mystery, the mystery. He's using a Greek word, mysterion, which in our Western uh, ears, when we hear a mystery, we think of Sherlock Holmes and, you know, something sinister, you know, a crime that we have to find, we have to uncover. Uh, if you ever played the game Clue, you know, you're finding all the clues, you need to find all the clues, you know, was it the, the maid, you know, or miss, was it? 
Scarlet, Mrs. Scarlet, and, and was it the wrench inside the lab- library? You, you're, you're gathering all the clues in order to come up with the truth. In the first century, that word mysterion referred to something that was only available to a select few, those who were spiritually elite, those who were really devoted to their gods and goddesses or really uh, deep into the practice of magic and sorcery. Uh, If they had the privilege of being a part of a rite or a ritual that would get them access to this uh, amazing knowledge of the gods or of the spirit world, that mystery. When Paul brings up mystery. He's referring to something that we don't have to look for. We don't have to discover the, what it is. We, there, there's nothing, no rite, no ritual that we have to be a part of in order to understand that ritual, that, that, what that mystery is. This mystery has been given, has been revealed to us, not just partially, but, but completely. Um, and, and it's, it's an amazing, again, amazing truth. And so as we Get back into uh, this passage, starting at uh, verse 1. And I have an outline on the top if you'd like to take uh, notes. We're going to look at first the man. Paul is going to first describe himself. We want to look into that. And then he's going to go into the mystery, talking about this God's plan of salvation, Jews and Gentiles coming together. Now, as we keep on moving on, you may notice that all the headings begin with the letter M. Why did I do that? Because I wanted to be clever. Um, <laughs> You want to know? There it is. Uh, it, did it work? I don't care. I, I'm going with it. I'm owning it. So let's look at the man first. Verse 1, the man. For this reason or account of this, what Paul's just been talking about, the Jews and Gentiles reconciled, one in Christ. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner, the prisoner. Now, Paul uh, as, he, as the time he's writing this, he is a prisoner. He's a prisoner of Rome. Back in Acts chapter 21, Paul was in uh, Jerusalem proclaiming the good news, and, and uh, there were some people who didn't like what he was saying, and uh, they just didn't like Paul at all. I mean, just what he was proclaiming that this Messiah, this, this, the Messiah, was this carpenter from Nowheresville, that he died on the cross. It's like they didn't like that. The Romans were kind of like, this is going against what we teach and all that. And so an accusation was brought before uh, uh, the government that Paul led uh, a Gentile uh, into the, the, the temple. Sacred place. You don't bring a Gentile in there. Paul traveled with Gentiles. One, the guy that they were thinking of was a guy named Trophimus. That's an interesting name. But he was actually from the city of Ephesus. Well, obviously, again, it's just, it was, it's all a lie. But they just were trying to find something to get rid of Paul. They didn't like him because of what he was teaching. Well, newsflash. A lot of people still don't like what we're teaching from God's word, right? Even though we proclaim the gospel, which is good news, not many people see it as good news. You know, they, they see it as, as, you know, it's not as if they have a problem with Je- what Jesus did, whether or not they believe in the miracles. When it comes to like Jesus loving people, uh, Jesus showing compassion on individuals, showing dignity to those who at that time were you know, kind of on the outskirts, marginalized by society. They're like, oh, we have no problems with that. But as soon as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to Father except through me. Well, now you've gone too far. Because that's, that's just too exclu- you know, exclusive. It's not inclusive. You're, you're saying the only way to salvation is through Jesus? Yes, exactly. Your only way to, the, to God the Father, to have a relationship with God the Father, is through Jesus? Exactly. 
only way to understand truth is through Jesus? Exactly. I don't like that. The world doesn't like that. The world didn't like it in, in Paul's day. And so, yes, he was arrested, and eventually he was, uh, because he was a Roman citizen, uh, he was going to plead his case before the Caesar, so he was sent to Rome, which, by the way, that was a crazy uh, little adventure just getting to Rome. But once he, Paul was in Rome, he, he was most likely placed under house arrest, so um, he was uh, chained to a Roman guard 24-7, uh, still had to rely on the donations of, of other people in order to... To provide for his needs. So Paul is a prisoner of Rome. He's got Roman guards looking over him, but notice Paul's perspective. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul uh, would go on to Later on in this letter, he's going to say the same thing. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In Philippians, I believe he talks about he's in chains before Christ. And in other past, uh, letters, he says he's a slave to Christ. Is that Jesus, uh, Jesus was everything to Paul. Paul's life was just consumed with following and submitting to Jesus. In Philippians, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. To live is going to always be, on Christ, be following Jesus, whether that's me in freedom, preaching in the streets, or in chains, writing letters. doesn't matter. I'm going to be with Jesus. I'm a slave to Jesus. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. Look what else he says. For the sake of you Gentiles. Last week, remember verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2, he's focusing in on the Gentiles. It's like, this is who you used to be prior to Christ. Now this is who you are. Paul says, I am a prisoner in Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Literally, on behalf of you. Paul's not saying this like, how dare you, you put me in this position. No, Paul's like, it was an honor to do it. And he's going to kind of develop that later on in our passage. So Paul is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Would any of us like to join in on that? <laughs> Anyone would like to say the, the stuff that Paul said? And again, people would say, well, of course, Paul would, would do that because he was like the superman. He was the super apostle, right? The super Christian. He was just a regular guy. And Paul, even later on, he's going to even say he's the least of all the saints. But he was empowered by the same spirit that's residing in us if we're followers of Christ. Paul relied on the Holy Spirit to get him through everything that he went through. Paul said, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, beginning in verse 2 through 7, this is where he's starting off into his little rabbit trail, sanctified rabbit trail. Here we go. And Paul's the first going to talk. He, he's bringing up the, the mystery here, the mystery of God's plan of salvation, including the Gentiles. Paul's going to start off with his stewardship of this mystery. Paul says, if indeed, verse 2, if indeed you have heard. Now, Paul's basically assuming that they have heard what he's about to say, that they had heard this, this report given to them. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. The word he uses for stewardship there is oikonomia. You may think of the word, that's where we get the word economy, but it, uh, it, it's, it's the idea of a management of a household. In those days, you had a household, you had someone at the very top overseeing the entire household, and you had everyone else had played a role in that household. Everyone had a role, had an oversight, uh, and what Paul's basically saying is, I've been given a role to play in God's kingdom. I've been given an oversight of God's grace, which has been given to me 
for you, on behalf of you Gentiles. He says, verse 3, that by revelation, the word for uses for revelation is apocalypsis. It's, it's the idea of this revealing, this unveiling, this disclosing what was originally hidden. By revelation, there was made known to me, there was clarified, pointed out to me, the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. What Paul's basically saying is, what I taught, what I delivered to you Gentiles, were, was not the ravings of a crazy man. It was not just made up in my own imagination. This was given by God. This was given direct revelation from God. It is true. You can believe it. You can trust it. You can live in light of it. So Paul was a steward of this mystery. Then we're going to go to verse 4, where he's going to talk about the believer's understanding of this mystery. Look what he says here. By referring to this, when you read, or when this, basically this letter is being read to you, you can, you Gentiles, you can, you, have the, you will have the ability, the capability to understand, to comprehend my insight into the mystery of Christ. This mystery isn't just going to, it's not like you, you, you won't, as I proclaim it, you're going to go, you're not going to be just scratching your head going, huh, I don't really understand. No, you will have the ability to understand it, to comprehend it. It's not going to be a mystery to you. It's a mystery that is revealed to you, that you can rejoice in. Verse 5, he says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Paul's saying that this, this, this mystery was shrouded if you think of uh, looking through like if, uh, a white curtain, maybe semi-opaque curtain, if you've ever looked through one, you can kind of see what's behind it. You can see shapes, you can see colors, maybe some shadows, but you really, it's not very clear. And what Paul's saying is back in the Old Testament times, that's kind of God's plan of salvation was kind of, it was veiled. Yeah, I had glimpses here and shadows here, but it wasn't, people really didn't understand what was going to go on. They knew a Messiah was coming. They knew that he was going to be come, come to this earth and he was going to be the, the king of kings, the bringer of peace. But the idea of him being born in obscurity to a young, penniless couple shrouded in scandal, they didn't know that. That was new to them. We didn't expect this. We expected a conquering king riding on his white horse, ready to destroy his enemies, not to say, love your enemies. And to say, forgive those who hurt you, persecute you. That's weird. Then dying on a cross? Really? This conquering king is going to die? The most horrifying, shameful way, especially on a cross, Roman cross? That's, they didn't understand that. Rising three days later from the dead? saying that now the, the, the eight, bringing the Spirit. It was, okay, well, in the Old Testament, they knew that the New Covenant was going to bring the Spirit. Okay, great. But they didn't, rec- they didn't understand that it wasn't just going to be the Jews who were going to receive the Spirit. The Spirit was going to be given to all who professed the name of Jesus, including the, Jew, the, the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't have to become Jews in order to be saved. All they needed to do was place their faith in, in Christ. That's something they didn't know. 
It was hidden. But now it has been, Paul's saying, it has now been revealed by the apostles and prophets. Paul was an apostle. And he's giving, revealing this mystery. Now Paul's going to focus on the content of, the mis- of this mystery. Verse six, what is it? Verse six, to be specific, that the Gentiles are, or literally they continually exist as fellow heirs. It can be translated co-inheritors. They're going to receive an inheritance just like the Jews who follow Christ. That's incredible. Paul talks about that inheritance in chapter one. And fellow members of the body, joint members of the same body. So he's not talking about two groups here, Jews and Gentiles on one side. He's like, no, you're all part of the same body. Christ is the head. Paul brought that up later earlier on. And fellow partakers, literally co-participants of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The promises of, of salvation through the Messiah, the age of the spirit, the coming kingdom of God that was given to Israel, that Israel put their hope in. Now the Gentiles could put their same hope in, that, in those promises because now they participate in those promises as well. They're going to, and it's, they could put their hope in it and rejoice in that amazing fact. Again, this is stuff he brought, Paul brought up last, last week, right? Chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. There's no longer any distinction there. That dividing wall of hostility has been removed. Gentiles and Jews are now the church. Fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And it was to this mystery that Paul was made a servant. Paul says in verse 7, of which I was made a minister. The word he uses for minister is diakonos, where we get the word deacon. It means a servant, one who serves. I was made a minister, a servant, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. Paul views God's grace as a gift as a precious gift which is why he brings it up again and again and again and you got to understand paul used to be a persecutor of the church but now god has made him an ambassador to the church you think paul going what are you kidding me it's grace Grace is undeserved favor and kindness that God gives, that God bestows. At one time, prior to Christ, Paul desired to destroy this thing called the church. At that time, they were called the followers of the way. And he would systematically go from house to house, dragging out men and women who were followers of Jesus and putting them into prison. He wanted to destroy the church, and now... God is using him to build up the church. If you put yourselves in Paul's shoes, think Paul going, are you kidding me? Really? And God's like, that's grace. And Paul says, it's a gift. It's a precious gift. Some of you have had pretty interesting testimonies, right? And you lived in open rebellion. You said, I did everything under the sun. Now you're part of God's church. You are now a saint. You have been given good works to do. 
Why? Because you're so intelligent? Because God looked in the future and saw that you would respond in a very uh, good way? No. Grace. Grace was given to you. And it's a gift. Do you, church, see grace in your life as a gift? Paul did. Paul saw it. He says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power, literally according to the functioning or the operation of his strength. Now Paul's going to move on, verses 8 through 12, talking about this ministry, this particular service that um, Paul was commissioned to be in. And the first thing is Paul's service involved proclaiming the good news. We look at verse 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, the very least, the, the, the word here is, is an interesting word. It, if we were to really translate it into English, it, it, really wouldn't, it wouldn't really make sense. It, it's kind of like, um, to me, the, the, the leastest of all the, of all the saints. And we kind of do that ourselves. You know, oh, something is not just magnificent, but the most magnificent-est. You know, that's not a word, just to let you know. Sorry if you've been using that. That's not a word, but it's a way of us talking about, it's not just magnificent, it's beyond magnificent. So Paul's saying, I'm not just the smallest, the least, uh, uh, I'm not just the the smallest and the uh, least important, least insignificant. I'm beyond that, below, below that. And again, it's like, Paul, why, are you, why would you say that? And in other passages like 1 Corinthians and, and in um, 1 Timothy, he would say that, you know, because I persecuted the church, Christ died for sinners, of whom I'm the chief sinner. I'm the least of all the saints. He says, to me, the least of all the saints, this grace was given. Again, it's a gift, was given to what? To preach, literally to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now that word unfathomable, it's even hard for me to say it, but uh, it, it comes from another word that means footprints, and it was used in Greek literature to refer to trackers who were tracking animals, and later on it took on a metaphorical uh, uh, definition of searching. Paul was commissioned to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. To show the vastness and the just significance of the riches of Christ. Paul was commissioned. And he says, that's good news. That's good news. Verse 9, he says, and to bring to light, literally to illuminate, what is the administration or the plan of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So Paul's ministry, his service included proclaiming the good news of the, to, to the, the Gentiles of the unfathomable riches of Christ and to illuminate this plan of God, this mystery which long time ago, centuries before, was hidden. People didn't understand and now they realize it. Now it's been given It's been revealed. It gets even more crazy here in verse 10, because now he's going to focus in on the church here. He says, so that, here's the purpose here, so that 
the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold could mean multicolored. It's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to Joseph's multicolored coat. Uh, again, just another word to describe the vastness, the beauty, the glory of God's wisdom. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to whom? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Like that doesn't go, whoa, what? Are you saying what I think? Whenever Paul brings up this idea of rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, it's, it's not in a good context. Paul's talking, of really referring to the demons, these gods, these spirits that the Ephesians were held captive in fear, which is why Paul goes into great lengths to say that Christ has been exalted above all those rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's been exalted, and guess what? You who are in Christ have been exalted right along with him. You are now with Christ where he's seated. So now these rulers and authorities have no control, have no uh, authority over your life. Instead... If you are part of the church, then you are part of this cosmic sermon of God's wisdom that is being preached to the spiritual rulers and authorities. Whoa. That hiccup, I'll take that as an amen. Amen. That was just the Holy Spirit telling you, you should say amen. You didn't say amen, so. Amen, there you go. This should change the way you look at the church. The church that we are a part of, you guys. We are on public display. God is using us to proclaim his wisdom to the spiritual rulers and authorities. Again, wrap your mind around that truth. Church is not something that we do by ourselves. You've got to understand that. It's not a solo thing. Whenever Paul talks about, uh, you know, especially here in Ephesians, he's not just focusing on the individual. He's not just focusing on the group. He's first, fo- or, or different groups. He's fo- focusing on the church. You are the church. And when we get to uh, chapter four, when he gets more pr- practical, he's basically saying this is how you as the church are supposed to live in light of your identity in Christ. Church, live this way. Church is not meant to be just by ourselves. Now, some people say, well, you know, I'm kind of a loner and I don't really like being around people. Then you are not reflecting the church that Christ died for. You are missing out on something really, really significant. The church is this group of, of individuals coming from different backgrounds. I mean, different you know, upbringings, different educations. We sound different. We dress different. We have different personalities, but we have the same spirit. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead resides in us and works in us, empowers us to, to serve each other, to love each other, and to serve the world, to be the hands and feet of Christ in this world. 
I mean, I love what Paul talks about in, in, in chapter 2, uh, the end of chapter 2, where he says that we are, are these blocks, these building blocks, different colors put, that God is putting together, aligning just so perfectly to build a dwelling for himself. I mean, a block by itself doesn't make a building. It needs to be put in with all the other blocks. The church is meant to be together. There's a story uh, that Jack has brought up. And I love this story it, um, because it's a bit controversial as well. And that's, and Jack, it's okay, right? It's all right. <laughs> <You've>, <laughs> don't worry, you've already shared this. It's nothing, not, not shown. Um, but uh, this building that we're in, uh, for those of you who don't know, who are new, this building was the result of many prayers, lots of planning, lots of investing. I mean, the, the church started in, in homes and then it outgrew the homes and then they spent over a decade in a, a senior center. You know, and every Sunday having to set up the chairs, tear down tables, and then set up all the equipment, the projector and all the technical stuff. And then afterwards, tear it all down, load it into a truck, take it back to your house, I think, right, Jim? And uh, store it there until next Sunday where they had to do the whole thing all over again. And they were just praying and planning, Lord, please give us a building. Lots of prayers, years of prayers, years of planning, investing financially. And even when this building got started construction, many of the members here stepped up to actually build it themselves. If you look at the roof, go ahead and shake uh, Jim and Pat's hand because they had a big to-do of the roofing on this church. Literally, they're up on the church putting on the shingles one by one. Many gave up their, you know, lots of time. They gave up their weekends. They, some gave up their, their vacation time to install the, the plumbing and the electricity and to do painting and all these other things. And uh, when the, the church was finally done and uh, one of the, the first weeks of the church assembling here, um, you know, it's great. Oh, yes, we're in our, finally are in our building. And Jack is preaching. I forgot what Jack's preaching on, but Jack says, you know, uh, it's really not that big of a deal if this church burns down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, now you guys like, whoa, whoa. Now, if I put myself in their shoes, I can understand. There were some people obviously really offended by that. How could you say that? All the prayer, all the planning, all the investing, all my weekends, all my vacation time, and you're saying it's not that big of a deal? Guess what? It really isn't. Cascade Bible Church is not this building. It's the people in this building. I mean, again, not knocking the building. Is it great to have a building? Yeah, it's great. You know, it's cold out there. It's great to have warm. It's great to have the, you know, the microphones and hallelujah, the restrooms, right? The kitchen, yes, for food and all a bunch of other stuff. But in the grand scheme of things, in light of eternity, God's kingdom, this building really isn't that significant. It's the people the people who God has brought together, united by his same spirit, empowering them to do the work. That's significant right there. 
And this, this church, this body of believers is part of this cosmic sermon of God's wisdom to the spiritual rulers and authorities. Woo! That's so good. So good. Okay, moving on. So Paul brings up his service. His service involved uh, proclaiming the good news, uh, involves shedding light onto the mystery to the Gentiles, and the church's service involves revealing the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And now he, he kind of focuses in on the mission of God, God's plan for salvation, verses 11 through 12. He says, um, this was, verse 11, in accordance with the eternal purpose which God carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, this wasn't just a shoot from the hip kind of deal. God's plan for salvation, it wasn't like, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's some individuals that you probably know who are really good at pivoting. Here's where we're going, something happens, okay, pivot, and here we're gonna do this. That's not who God is. It wasn't as if God created everything, and then all of a sudden Adam and Eve fall into sin, and then God becomes Winnie the Pooh sitting on his log going, think, 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 think. What am I gonna do? How am I gonna, you know, fix this issue? No. Prior to God even creating the universe, matter, space, time, God who knows everything made a decision. I'm going to save my people. Sin is going to come into the world and I'm going to save it through Jesus Christ, living and dying for my people. And I'm going to create this thing called the church of individuals who you would not expect sharing meals together serving together. I'm going to bring those people together and they're going to be my ambassadors. They're going to proclaim the good news to the rest of the world. This was part of God's eternal purpose, God's plan that he carried out in Christ Jesus. And what was the result of this plan? Verse 12, in whom we have, we continually possess boldness and confident access through faith in him. When he, talk, when he uses the word boldness, it's, it's the idea of having a, a frankness, being able to talk to God with a candidness. Uh, you're not speaking to someone you don't know. It's like you're, you're speaking to a, a, a family member. We're speaking to our Heavenly Father. And, and as a result of that relationship, we can be honest with Him. We can be real with Him. He says, we have boldness. We have the freedom to come, confidently come access, confidently access God our Father through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and this is what really hurts me with our, you know, individuals. Maybe you have family friends who are part of Catholicism where it's, I have to go through a priest or a saint in order to get to God. I have to, you know, ask the priest, oh, could you pray for me? I'll pray to this saint, and this saint will then deliver, hopefully, my message to God. But the fact is, if you're in Christ, you have access to God. You just go directly to the, the source. That's amazing. Amazing. Paul's then going to close off verse 13. Misery. Therefore, in light of this amazing truth, I ask, I, I, I request, Paul's saying, I request that you not to lose heart at my tribula tribulations on your behalf. 
the idea of losing heart is the idea of being discouraged to the point where it's almost like being punched in the stomach, where you're just like, Whoa! it just, it knocks you down to your knees. Paul's like, I ask that you not lose heart, that you not be discouraged, you not grow weary at my tribulations, at my afflictions on your behalf. Why? For they are your glory. Paul's saying, like, if, if I didn't come proclaiming the gospel to you, then you would, have, you would have still been dead in your trespasses and sins. You would have not known that the way to salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. You wouldn't have received the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't be part of this magnificent thing called the church. And so Paul's like, it, it, I'm in prison because of, of, of my devotion to Christ to proclaim the gospel to you Gentiles, and he's okay to do it. He's okay to be in prison. He's okay. He's willing to suffer so long that they, as they hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, it's, it's appropriate for Paul to... to kind of end this little rabbit trail this way because in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 to 21 you know Paul's kind of revealing his prayer uh, to to the to the church he's saying you know I'm praying that your knowledge and understanding of God would grow more and more and more and then he adds that you would understand fully understand the surpassing greatness of God's power in your life that same power uh, that rose Jesus from the dead, high above all the rulers and authorities and every name that is named. He said that you would understand, know that power and experience that power, which is through the Holy Spirit. Now, it's, it's very possible during this time that there were some critics, some skeptics, some false teachers kind of coming in, mingling with the church, which has been happening for Oh gosh, the the history of the church. And they're probably saying, you know, with with all this talk of power, you know, Paul talking about the power that's now in you, the same power that rose Christ from the dead is in you, and you have access to this power. Paul's in prison. Paul's suffering. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem like power. That doesn't seem like victorious living. And so what Paul's saying here in verse 13, he says, therefore, in light of this information, he says, I don't want you to lose heart. He's basically saying, listen, you guys, this is all God's plan. This is all part of God's plan. Maybe it doesn't meet your expectations, but it's still God's plan. And me suffering for for the cause of Christ, being in prison, does not nullify the truth, does not nullify the power that's still working in you. This is all part of God's plan. We can we can still trust Him. Now, this kind of brings up the um, topics of God's sovereignty and God's goodness, and both belong to God. Sovereignty is not a biblical term, but it's used to refer to God's control, that God is, is in, control, in control of the entire universe, that nothing happens in this universe apart from him, letting, allowing it to happen. He is, he is sovereign, but he's also good. Now, if you're the type of person who 
diminishes the goodness of God, but elevates the sovereignty of God, well, then you have a God who is really powerful and really strong, but a God who's not for you, a God who doesn't really care about you, a God who may do things like bring suffering and pain in your life because maybe he's upset at you because he's not good. Ultimately, he's a God you can't trust. Now, if you're the type of person who focuses on God's goodness, but not his sovereignty, then it's like, well, God is good, God is loving, and, and he has the right intentions, but he's not powerful enough to direct my life, to protect me. In other, again, I can't trust that kind of God. But the truth is, God is both sovereign and he's good. And because of that, Paul goes on again in other passages, you can trust him. Even if it leads to suffering, pain, tribulation, imprisonment, even death. God is not going to waste that suffering. He's going to use it. Go to, uh, real quick, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions. Huh? Knowing that Affliction brings about perseverance. Verse 4, the per, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Go over to, uh, skip over to Romans 8. Romans 8, probably you've already memorized this. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign, but he is also good. And yes, you living in this broken world, this world full of sin and evil, uh, may encounter suffering, may encounter pain, but God is not going to waste that suffering or that pain. He's going to use it. The enemy wants to bring that pain onto your life to destroy you. God's like, no, I'm going to use it to grow you, to build you up into the image of Jesus Christ. God's going to use it for his glory and our good. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Now, when, it, when we look at uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, uh, be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ. So imitate me as I imitate Christ. And when we look at this passage here, we see that Paul, even extending far back into uh, chapter 2, we see that Paul has a high view of the church. 
Paul has a high view of the church. The church is not a building. The church is a people united in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Individuals from different backgrounds, different personalities, different educations, individuals who are CEOs, individuals who are poorer than poor, together, working together, loving each other, serving each other for the kingdom of God. This is an amazing thing. This is an amazing thing. Paul has a high view of the church. Do we have a high view of the church? Do we see church as uh, optional? Or do we see the church as essential? Because the way Paul talked about it, the church wasn't just something that you went to when it was convenient for you. It was like your lifeline. It was, it's essential to be united in the body of Christ. Because it's not a building. It's not a set of programs. It is a people working together that God is using through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul also, as we look through this passage, was willing to serve. He was willing to serve. Now, when you think about service, it's pretty convenient for the one being served, but not for the one serving, right? The one who's receiving the service, oh, that's nice, that's convenient. But for the one serving, it's not. That's the nature of service. It's not convenient. Service costs us something. It costs us our time. It costs us um, our energy. It costs us sometimes our finances to serve. Paul was willing to serve the church and those even outside the church. How are we? I mean, let's just start at the church level. Are we willing to serve? Are we willing, if you call Cascade Bible Church your home, are you willing to step out and serve? You know, it's, I'll say this and please take, please receive this with love because I love you guys. Um, There's a lot of people begging. I come from Southern California and a lot of people, when I talk about, when, I, when I'm here, whenever you hear Southern California, the re- response is, Ugh, you came from that place? Sodom and Gomorrah, evil, dark. Oh, I wouldn't wish, my, I wouldn't wish people going down to California were my worst enemy. And yet, when I served at the churches there, I never had issues finding people to serve in ministries. We would do a VBS and I'd literally have to turn people away because we had too many. See, yes, it's a bad place in California. I'm not saying it's all gumdrops and roses and wonderful. It's hard. Being a follower of Christ in, that, in California, Southern California in particular, is really hard. But the people in the church recognize it and they see the church as not just optional, but essential. And they see that that 
we are called to love one another and serve. So that's what they do. I mean, I, I tell you the truth. I was spoiled in Southern California. I was shocked when I came to Lapine. I realized this is difficult. I was so, again, I would say I was spoiled. You know, what's really sad is that um, this city, once a year, comes together and puts on this amazing celebration during Fourth of July, Frontier Days. It's great. It's done so well. It's amazing. My kids love it. We've always enjoyed the parades, the, the Frontier Days, and all the things that's going on, the, the games and the food and everything. It requires so many people to make that event happen. So many individuals giving of their time. You're sacrificing weekends. And then they're out there sometimes in the hot sun doing the games and doing the prizes and all the food and everything. It's amazing how much people are working. And yet, I can't get anyone to watch the one to three-year-olds at this church. Now, again, if you're going to be offended at me, it's okay, because I'm going to be leaving in a couple of weeks. You could be fine. But I love you guys, and I love this church, and I look at this church, and I see people who are, God is doing amazing work in your life. And you have so much potential. And God has you here for a reason. And one of the reasons is to serve. How are we doing that? Paul was willing to serve. Are we willing to serve? And that finally leads to, are we willing to suffer? Because following Jesus sometimes will lead to persecution. Jesus said before he died, he told his disciples, in this world you will have Lots of problems, lots of trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul, in his uh, second letter to Timothy, says, anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted, will experience persecution. Paul knew. I mean, read his letter to the Corinthians, especially 2 Corinthians. He goes on talking about his life, how he was beaten, imprisoned. You hear of other... uh, Christians who were, you know, suffering, losing their lives. But it was worth it to them. Why? Because Christ is worth it. So Paul had a high view of the church. Do we have a high view of the church? Paul was willing to serve. Are we willing to serve? Paul was also willing to suffer. Are we willing to suffer? Again, the the focus of this letter, the letter of Ephesians, is the believer's identity in Christ. So what we've learned thus far is that if you are in Christ, you are a saint. You don't need a Vatican or a Pope to give you the little blessing. You are a saint. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've been forgiven of all your sins. You've been redeemed. You've been saved. You've been reconciled. You are the church. Let's actually be the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for this amazing rabbit trail. Uh, a sanctified rabbit trail, a, a, tri- a, tri- a trail that is challenging, that is encouraging. Um, Lord, forgive us for being so us-focused. I know I am guilty of it as well. I get caught up in all the hustle and bustle of my own life that I neglect 
I neglect the church, your church. And so, Lord, help us to be the church. Lord, we are in a, you, we are in a significant season of transition and change. And this is a season, Lord, that the enemy would want to exploit, to cause division, to cause problems, to destroy Cascade Bible Church. And so that now, Lord, more than ever, help us be the church. Help us be the church, united in Christ, in one spirit, for one purpose, for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and... Uh,